Well, welcome you to the adult Bible class this morning, to those who are with us here in the building and joining online. Trust the Lord will bless us even as we gather around His Word and His truth this morning. So we're turning to Leviticus chapter 23, please. So Leviticus 23, and we'll commence our reading, verse 9, reading through verse 14. So Leviticus 23, and we'll read from verse 9. So let's hear the word of our God. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye be come into the land which I gave unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it. And ye shall offer that day when ye wave the sheaf, and he lamb without blemish of the first year for a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the meat offering thereof shall be two tenth deals of fine flour mingled with oil, and an offering made by fire unto the Lord for a sweet savour. And the drink offering thereof shall be of wine, the fourth part of an hin. And ye shall eat neither bread nor parched corn, nor green ears until the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto your God, and it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Amen. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Let's just unite in prayer, please, before we come and consider what lies before us in scriptures. Let's again unite in prayer. Come to the Lord, our gracious God and loving Father. We thank thee that we can approach thee Rejoice, O God, in the revelation of Thyself to us in the Scripture. We thank Thee we come to worship Thee, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We come through Christ's mediation. Rejoice, O God, in the One who Himself declared to be the way, the truth, and the life. We thank Thee, Lord, for His precious blood, for reconciliation. We thank Thee for the man of peace. We bring Thee thanks, O God, at every remembrance of the Lord Jesus. It is a day when we are called to remember the sacrifice of so many. And yet, Lord, we turn our minds to remember the one great sacrifice for sin. We thank Thee for the Lamb. We rejoice in Him. We thank Thee for this place when we can come together around Your Word for the adult Bible class once again. We pray it will be of profit to those who hear. We pray that Thou will strengthen us in our faith, that Thou would establish us we pray, O oh God, for our Sunday school and our junior and senior Bible classes. We pray for every child and young person that once again you would prepare their heart, O oh God, and that thou would give a word unto thy servants. And as they would, as it were, close the door and gather the little ones around their knee, we pray, O oh God, that thou would open the door of the heart and there be an entrance of thy word, for thy word, the entrance of it, it giveth light, dispels the darkness. And we pray, O God, that young people will be led in the way of their God. And we pray that Thou would speak to all that would hear the word. So, Lord, we lift our eyes heavenward. I pray now for Thy help. I ask Thee for Thy blessing. I pray that You would wash me in the Redeemer's blood and that Thou would fill me with the Holy Ghost. And help me, Lord, what Thou has given, what has been prepared and studied out. The Lord, it will be a blessing. Lord, there will be uh, even a uh, uh, fruit from it that will bring glory and honor to your great name. So do us good, Lord. Shut us in 
and give us help, Lord, even as we gather around your word. And may we be like Mary sitting at thy feet, just hearing what our Lord would have to say. So hear prayer and answer for this we ask in Jesus' name with an eye to his and thine everlasting praise and glory. Amen. Now we continue on this morning in our study of the seven feasts of the Lord as they are outlined for us, given to us in Leviticus chapter 23. Now we've already looked at the feast of the Passover and the last time we were looking at the feast of unleavened bread. And this morning we move on to consider the feast of the first fruits, which we find in those verses we have read, verses 9 to uh, 14. Now I've pointed out the progressive revelatory nature of these three spring feasts. The purpose of God's grace is highlighted in them by typology, each feast building upon the other, and each revealing a specific aspect of God's operation of grace and mercy for the everlasting salvation of His people. The first feast established, well, we know that it is the feast of the Passover, and there we have typified Christ, our Passover sacrifice for us, by whom, through whom, we are justified by the imputation of His righteousness to us. So there's a feast that speaks of our justification. Then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it was established, and it portrayed really our life of faith in this world, the purging of sin out of our lives. And we could think there of our sanctification. And this could not be the case if we were not redeemed by Christ's blood. And now we come to the Feast of the first fruits in which we have before us Christ, our resurrection. And we have a guarantee of the future bodily resurrection uh, which follows this life of faith that we have in Christ Jesus. And that speaks of our glorification. So there we have it, each building upon the other, justification, sanctification, glorification. And the order of the feasts is therefore significant because it teaches us that truth that Paul outlined for us in Romans chapter 8, whom he justified, them he also glorified. It is the blood, and we have to say, if the blood is applied, well then we will be sanctified, we will be glorified. Now we're going to consider this feast, the feast of the first fruit, again this morning under three headings. So the first thing I want to bring to your attention is the ceremony in the feast of the first fruits. Now, like all the feasts, the ceremony and the procedure is laid out by the Lord. The Lord was the one who instituted this feast. He was the one who directed His people how and even when they were to worship Him. And that's what He says there, verse 10. Look at it. Speak. He's speaking to Moses. He says, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I gave unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof. Then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest, and he shall weave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall weave it. Now, while the feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread was and could be observed before the children of Israel reached the land of promise, the feast of the firstfruit, well, it could only be kept when they entered into Canaan. Now, why was that? Well, in the wilderness, there would be no sowing, there would be no reaping, there would be no harvest. And the fact that God gave them this ordinance before they came to the land of promise, it was an assurance that He would do for them and to them as He had said and as He had promised unto Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It also fits uh, 
with the typology that the Lord intended, that it wouldn't be celebrated, it wouldn't be kept until they came to the land of promise, after a lifetime of wandering in the wilderness. Now, the feast of the first fruits, it would serve as a reminder to the Israelites that God had rescued them from slavery. Yes, that's true. But had He also provided for them a place to live and a place to grow crops. See, He was not only the God who had brought them out. He is the God who would bring them in. And it's the same for us. He's the God who has brought us out of this world, but He is the God who will bring us into the land of promise. For 40 years, the children of Israel, they would have ate manna, the food of their wilderness journey. But then when they arrived in Canaan, it was time to celebrate the promise of God's abundant harvest in the land of provision. And so they would have observed this feast after the feast of the Passover, after the feast of unleavened bread, as we have laid out for us in Joshua chapter 5 and verses 10 to 12. That's when they kept the feast for the first time. Now with the first two feasts, the other two feasts, the actual date, if you like, is given on which those feasts were to be observed. And we have thought about that. The feast of the Passover was always to be observed on the 14th day of the first month of Eve, or Nisan as it became known. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, well, it was always to be held on the 15th day of the same month. And those days are specifically mentioned in Scripture, the 14th day and the 15th day. Now, concerning the Feast of the Firstfruits, there's been much discussion because verse 11 says that it was to be kept on the morrow after the Sabbath. Now, there's two ways in which this can be taken. Firstly, some would take this to mean that it always, was always to be observed on the 16th day, for they count the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread as the Sabbath that is mentioned here in verse 11. And that would mean well, at the 14th day of the month of Eve, it fell on a Monday, and that was the day that the Passover was to be kept. Then on Tuesday would have been the unleavened bread, and then on the Wednesday would have been the Feast of the first fruits. That's how it would have fallen if the Sabbath here mentioned is the Sabbath of the unleavened bread. However, there are others who think that the Sabbath that's mentioned in verse 11 is the weekly Sabbath, not the Sabbath of the unleavened bread, and that would mean that the feast of the first fruit was always celebrated on the Sunday, the first day of the week, after the Jewish Sabbath, which is a Saturday. Now, if we take into consideration, and we will come to it, the feast of weeks, which always began 50 days later, and it was to be held on the morrow after the seventh Sabbath, and we read about that in verses 15 and 16 on down in this chapter, then I would have to favor that the Sabbath mentioned here in verse 11 is the weekly Sabbath, meaning that the Feast of the Firstfruits was always celebrated on the first day of the week, our Sunday, the Lord's Day. And that, I believe, was not by accident, but it pointed forward in God's calendar to what would happen on that day, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many believe that that would have been the 17th day of the month of Nisan on the Passion Week. 
And that's a little detail to keep in mind later on as I come towards the end of the study. Believing that Christ actually rose on the 17th day of Nisan, which would have been the day after the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, the first day of the week, or Sunday, or Lord's Day. Now, the ceremony, that's just a little detail concerning the timing and, and what I believe the Sabbath in verse 11 to indicate. It is a weekly Sabbath and not the Sabbath of the unleavened bread. Now, the ceremony was quite simple. Before the people were able to reap the barley harvest, this was the first grain harvest of the year, around the month March and April, they were to cut down a single sheaf out of the field. They were to bring it to the priest who was to lift it up and wave it before the Lord. And on the same day, the Israelites, well, they were to take a he lamb of the first year. They were to offer it unto the Lord as a burnt offering. And they were also to give a meat offering of grain, of double what was required at other times when the meal offering was offered. They were also to offer oil and wine. And those offerings, they're all described as sweet-smelling savors unto the Lord. The he lamb, the oil, the wine, the meal offering. They are the ones described as the sweet-smelling savors unto the Lord. There was to be no sin offering offered that day. And again, that is significant. Now, we learn from Jewish writers certain details of how this feast was carried out, especially in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we learn from Jewish historians. Delegates from the Sanhedrin, followed by a great company of people, would have went out of Jerusalem, over the Kidron Valley, and into the nearby barley fields on the evening before this feast was to be observed. They would have selected standing bundle of barley, and they would have bound it with a scarlet cord. They then would have asked the crowd some questions. Is the sun set? They would have answered, Yes. With the sickle shall I reap? Again, they would have answered, Yes. In this basket, yes, came the reply again. On the Sabbath day, yes, once again was the answer. And after the crowd had given the go-ahead, the bundle was reaped down. It was then put into a basket. It was taken to the temple court. It's believed that it was threshed out. It was sifted, and the grains of barley, they were, per, they were parched with fire. They were ground to a fine flour, and a handful of that would have been thrown into the fire that was burning upon the altar. It said that the priest would have then taken the fine flour, or some suggest it was still a sheaf, and he would have lifted it up, and he would have waved it to the four points of the compass. Now, the imagery in all that is striking. And with our Christological glasses on, you might say, we view the Savior and all that. He went over the Kidron Valley. Where was he bound? He was bound in Gethsemane for the purpose of death. It was the crowd who gave the go-ahead to, as it were, have him reap down, cut down. He was, as it were, parched with the fires of God's wrath. He was threshed out even before that with the whip of the Romans. He was put under the millstone of God's justice and ground out for us for the sins of those from the four corners of the earth. 
And so these are the details concerning the ceremony, and even in them, and even in the practice of them, in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see Christ is the fulfillment of it once again. But secondly this morning, not only the ceremony in the Feast of the Firstfruits, but we have the consecration in the Feast of the Firstfruits. The first thing the Israelites did after a long and laborious season of growing crops was to express their thankfulness to God for meeting their needs. And this was done by keeping the Feast of the Firstfruits. At this festival, the Israelites, they offered the very first sheaf of the harvest to the Lord. And that would have required faith on the part of the Israelites. Because the word first fruits, it means actually hasty fruits. And not all the field would have ripened at once, as you can imagine. Some ground conditions would have been better. Maybe sunlight or whatever fell on a, a first part of the field more than others. And so the word first fruits in the Hebrew, it means actually hasty fruits. And so this would have required faith. They would have had to go in. They would have found that bundle. They would have bound it up. They would have reaped it down. They would have brought it in. But it was really an expression of their faith that God would still bring the harvest in. And yet they would offer this unto the Lord. They had to trust God that He would indeed provide the fullness of grain that had yet to be gathered in. They could not eat. They could not reap until this was done. And we read of that in verse 14. It says there, And ye shall not, and ye shall neither eat bread, nor parched corn, nor green ears, until the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. The first fruits offering, it represented the whole harvest still in the field. And so they gave thanks to God while the harvest was yet standing and before they had eaten of it themselves. And that's because the first fruits belonged to the Lord. Just as the firstborn of the children of Israel belonged to the Lord and the firstling of the flock belonged unto the Lord. We're taught that in Exodus chapter 13 verse 2 and chapter 22 and verse 29. The firstborn, the firstling of the flock, and the firstfruits. And the Lord's part must come first. It was an acknowledgement of His Lordship, and that all things come from Him. We're told that in Psalm 24 and verse 1, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And He's the one that causes the crops to grow. We thought about that in a prayer meeting a number of weeks ago from Psalm 65. God is worthy of the first fruits being offered unto Him. And the keeping of this ordinance would once again be an expression of the people's love and devotion to the Lord. The Israelites were not to please themselves and then give the leftovers to God. And this is something that Israel became guilty of. They had robbed God of what was Due unto him. And that's a charge that was laid against them in the prophecy of Malachi. And what is sinful man's attitude? It's always me first. But the believer's life, it should be a living witness that it is God first. It's God first. Giving God first place 
in all things is a principle we can apply to every part of our life. It's something that we're taught in the New Testament. Was it not the Savior that said in Matthew 6 and verse 33, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This was the principle that's laid down here in this feast. It belonged to the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And by the consecration, the giving of the sheaf of this hasty ears of, of corn or barley unto the Lord, it was an acknowledgement that this is the Lord's and that we are benefit, benefiting from His hand and His goodness. You see, there is a great battle for who has the first things in our life. There's a great battle of first things. The first part of our lives is to be given to the Lord. We're reminded of that in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. In fact, our whole lives, not only the first days of our life, but our whole lives are to be given unto the Lord. The churches in Macedonia, Paul, he reminded the people that they first gave themselves unto the Lord. Before their substance, they gave themselves to the Lord. So the first days of our lives ought to be given to the Lord. All the days of our lives should be given to the Lord. The first part of the day is something that is to be consecrated unto the Lord. There's a battle there. We read of the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 1. And the verse 35, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there prayed. And what a battle there is for the first hour of the day, or the first moments of the day. The first day of the week is to be consecrated to the Lord. And what a battleground there is. And you see the world today, my father was saying yesterday that Macrofelt is now nearly the busiest day in the week is the Lord's Day. What a battle there is, and yet our catechism teaches us that the Christian Sabbath, the first day of the week, is to be sanctified by a holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on, on other days. And spending the whole time in public and private exercises of God's worship except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. What a battle there is in the first day of the week. The first part of our income is to be consecrated unto the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we read about honoring the Lord with our substance and the first fruits of our increase, and then about the associated blessings in doing so. And there's a battle there, especially in these days of economic pressure, the battle for first things. We are to consecrate our children to the Lord. And that practice of dedication was performed by the Jews. I mean, we read about that a number of times in the Scripture. You see, God has rightful claim to everything in our lives. And that is how we should live. The battle for the first things. 
first days of our lives, our whole lives, the first hour, moments of our day, the first day of the week, the first uh, things of our substance, our firstborn, and all our children. There's a great battle. But all these things come from our God, and therefore to consecrate them, to offer them as an acknowledgement of His Lordship and even His goodness towards us. Now we read that the first fruits were to be offered with oil in the meat or the meal offering, as we would know it, because it was a grain offering. And this meat or meal offering, it was doubled. As I said, it was said there in verse that two tenths deals of fine flour in verse 13. Well, usually it was only one tenth, but it was two tenths. And then there was the wine that was offered in the drink offering. And oil and wine in Scripture, well, what do they speak of? They speak of joy and gladness. And I read around the Lord's table last Lord's Day from Psalm 104 and the verse 15. It speaks of wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil that causeth the face to shine. And this offering of first fruits was to be done joyfully and willingly. This was a joyful consecration unto the Lord. And this is how we should consecrate those first things in our life. It should be a joyful and a willing uh, consecration to our God. Now, before I move on, having dealt with the consecration, I want to just mention and fit this in here. We learn from Numbers 18 and verse 13 that the first fruits, they had another function. And I just want to mention in here. The people, they offered the first fruits to the Lord. They were His. But God gave it to the priests. It was their portion. Read in Numbers chapter 18 and verse 13. And whatsoever is first ripe in the land, which they shall bring unto the Lord, shall be thine. Every one that is clean in thine house shall eat of it. And they were words that were spoken by the Lord to Aaron, the first high priest of Israel. And the order is important. The people offered or they give to the Lord. Speaks there about whatsoever is first ripe in the land which they shall bring unto the Lord. And it was the Lord who used that to provide for His servants. You see, the people were not to give to the priests directly. They were to give to the Lord. And this is how we are to view the giving of our finances and tithes and offerings. We are not giving to men, but we are giving to the Lord who distributes to His servants. You are giving to the Lord. I am giving to the Lord. The practical needs of the priests were met by the observance of this feast and many of the other feasts and offerings. However, at some point in Israel's history, God's people had lapsed in this. We read in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, in the days of Hezekiah, well, he again began to organize the people to obey these commands and keep these feasts, and therefore the priests were provided for. And so there was a willing consecration of the people and the giving of the people even in the days of King Hezekiah. So we have the consecration of the feast of the first fruits. But finally this morning, the Christ in the feast of the first fruits. Now, what is interesting and should not surprise us is that in Scripture there are many important, significant events recorded as happening 
on the 17th of Nisan. Now, the word Nisan, remember I said the month of Eve, it changed to Nisan after the captivity, but it means, it means new beginning, that month, new beginnings. Now, there are five really significant and important events that happened on the 17th of that month. The first one, Noah's Ark rested on Mount Ararat. And we read of that in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. And remember, this is prior to the change that the Lord made concerning the first month of the year. Remember the month of Eve? It used to be the seventh month in the year. And he changed it to Passover to be the first month of the year. But we read in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. So we could see there that really the ark, we could say it was in the new world, because the old world perished, as we read in the New Testament. Men to the new world rested there on the 17th day of the month Nisan. Israel come out of Egypt, and they crossed the Red Sea on the 17th day of Nisan. And we read of that in the book of Exodus. It was the 17th day when they crossed the Red Sea. Israel, they ate the first fruits of the promised land on the 17th day of Nisan. The manna that God gave from heaven during the days of the wilderness had ceased on the 16th day of the month. And the people then ate the old corn of the land. And then we read in Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 and 12, that they ate of the fruit of the land of the Canaan that year. And so it was on the 17th day they kept the month, or they kept the feast of the first fruits. And that happened, interesting enough, after the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the priests down into the river Jordan. A picture of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Haman was defeated and slain on the 17th day of the month. And this we deduce from the evidence gathered together in the book of Esther. See, a decree was sent out on the 13th day of Nisan that all the Jews will be killed. We read of that in chapter 3, verse 12. And upon hearing the news, what did Esther do? She proclaimed three days of fasting. So that would have been the 14th, the 15th, and then on the 16th. On the 16th, on that day, Esther, she risked her life as she came before the king uh, that she was married to. The king, he asked her, he asked her in effect, tell me what you want. And Esther says, well, if it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman Come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Chapter 5, verse 4. She prepared a meal on the 16th day, the last day of her fast. At the banquet, the king again asked Esther, Well, what do you want? And she said, Well, come tomorrow for another feast, the 17th day of the month, the banquet the next day. And it was on that day that Haman was hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. And finally, as I say, I believe the resurrection of Christ took place in His day. The 17th day of the month Nisan, the first day of the week, which happened to be the morrow after the Sabbath, on the week Christ was crucified. And this really brings us to what this study is chiefly about, seeing the shadows 
of the Savior in these feasts. There are many types concerning Christ. His death in the Old Testament, we've already thought about the Levitical offerings. We've thought about the Passover lamb. And we could also think and add to that the brazen serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. But what about the resurrection? Is there any types of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? Well, it wasn't so long ago we heard from Dr. Pollock that Jonah is a type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Savior explains that himself in Matthew chapter 12. But here in the first fruits, we have another example. And we know this because of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and the verse 20. If you want to turn there, and we can keep our marker on there for the rest of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the verse 20. And he says there, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. You see, the sheaf of grain, it represents life from the dead. The apparently lifeless seed is sown into the ground. It's planted into the earth, and it emerges a living plant producing more seeds. And Christ described the hour of his death in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24, with the analogy of a corn of wheat falling into the ground to die. But we know he did not remain in the earth. The enemies of Christ thought they had done away with him, that they had killed him. They tried to prevent his, as it were, resurrection. Well, they didn't believe in it. They tried to prevent maybe uh, the disciples coming and steal the body and claiming a resurrection. They tried to do all that by sealing the tomb and setting a guard. They did everything in their power. But Christ of firstfruits prevailed over the grave and over death. And in doing so, he brought many he brought eternal life to many. In Leviticus 23 and verse 14, we saw that the harvest was prohibited until the first fruits were offered. The crop was, as it were, bound under a ceremonial law. And the offering of the first fruits, it removed the bond that was upon the harvest. And it released it to be lawfully gathered in. And all mankind is bound under the law. And it's only now through Christ that He, the firstfruits, has been offered unto God that you and I have been released from the bondage of the law. And we can and have been gathered in. As the firstfruits was taken from the same crop that the rest of the harvest would be gathered in from, so for sinners to be redeemed, only an offering of a perfect man would suffice. Again, the Son of God, He fulfilled this by His incarnation, taking to Himself a true humanity. One sheaf of barley, once offered, was sufficient to sanctify the whole of the harvest. And Christ, by His one offering, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, we're told by Paul in Romans chapter 11, verse 16, if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. Just as the reaping of the first fruits was a promise of the harvest that would soon follow, so too the resurrection of Christ is a sure guarantee of the resurrection of all believers. And Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 8 and the verse 11. 
For he says, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. And the point of assurance, certain hope of a resurrection unto eternal life of the saints is what the Apostle Paul was making in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's the whole point of that. The resurrection of Christ was paramount to the teaching of the apostles and the early church. You see, no one denied the existence of Christ at that time. And most, even as enemies, well, they had to acknowledge that he performed miracles, although they attributed to Beelzebub. So the big issue wasn't, did Jesus exist? Or did Jesus even do miracles? Or was he different? They all knew he was different. Never a man spake like this man. The big issue at the time was whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. And the resurrection was a confirmation that Jesus truly was, and indeed the Son of God, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 1. If the resurrection were not true, if it did not happen, the gospel would be no gospel at all. It would be vain. It would be empty. It would be without any true substance. It would be dead. It would be worthless. And if that was so, then that would be true of the faith of the Corinthians. It would be dead. It would be worthless. It would be empty. It would be vain. And they would be yet in their sins. They would not be justified. They would not be forgiven. They were still condemned. And they would know no victory over death. You see, if the Christian hope it lay, lies no further than the grave, then we are to be, of all men, most pitied. And we are most miserable. And even Paul makes that admission. And in doing so, what does he imply? The Christian life's a hard life. It's a hard life. It's not a rosy life. It's not an easy life. At times it's not a prosperous life. If there was no hope beyond the grave, we would be of all men most miserable. Why suffer a life of faith that goes no further than the grave? Why not eat, drink, and be merry like the rest of the world? For tomorrow we die, and that is it. The whole hope of the Christian life, it is bound to the resurrection. If you take that away, well, what's left? It's empty, it's vain. And having Paul, having taken his readers to the gloomy depths of what a denial of the resurrection would entail, the apostle, he brings them back up, as it were, with this glorious statement in verse 20. Introduced, but, but now in Christ. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Our faith and our hope is not in vain. Read of that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. And then jumping down to verse 6, we have the, the glorious declaration of the angel. He is not here. For he has risen as he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Though others had been raised from the dead, 
Christ was the first to be resurrected never to die again. He lives in the power of an endless life. Paul goes on to say in verse 23, 1 Corinthians 15, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Christ is the first to be raised, first in time, to be raised to life never to die again. And he's also the first in rank. And that's what it means, every man in his own order. Christ is first in time, yes. Christ is also first in that He is preeminent. His is a resurrection like no other. And yet, the first fruits, it bore a similarity and a resemblance to the rest of the harvest. And though the Christian, well, we have no equality with the Lord, there is a likeness between the Christian's resurrected body and Christ's. And that's we're told in portions like Philippians 3, verse 20. And in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 2, that our vile body shall be made like unto His glorious body, and we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. He is preeminent. He is first in that resurrection. His is like none other, but we shall have a part in it. Every man in his order, we shall follow after in time, and yes, in rank but there shall be a resemblance at least to Christ's resurrected body. Paul mentioning the coming of Christ there at the end of verse 23, he goes on to say in verse 24, Then cometh the end. The end. In a parable in Matthew 13, we're told that the harvest is the end of the world. And in Revelation 14, verses 15 and 16, the there's a harvest spoken of. It's actually a double harvest. There's a harvest of the grain and the harvest of the grapes. And I believe the harvest of the grain, and I'll explain this, is the harvest of God's children, but the harvest of the grapes is the harvest of the ungodly. But we read there in verses 15 and 16 in Revelation 14, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe, and he that sat in the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. From the Greek word ripe, the harvest being ripe, it tells us that that was a harvest of grain. And that's representative of those who are Christians. We learn of that in Matthew chapter 13, that the wheat, it represents the children of the kingdom, those who have Christ enthroned in their hearts. See, there will be a time when the last one for whom Christ has died will trust in Him, and then the harvest will be ripe. Then it's the end of the world. And God will gather His people unto Himself. Psalm 126 and verse 6, it was prophetically said of Christ, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing His sheaves with Him. The Lord Jesus will bring every one of His children safe to the heavenly storehouse. It's spoken of in similar language. Matthew chapter 3 in the verse, verse 12, we read that he will gather his wheat into his garner. The Lord will gather us in. And that's in stark contrast to the chaff that will be burnt up with unquenchable fire. On the day of Christ's resurrection, the high priest, he would have stood before the rent veil. 
with a sheaf, and he would have lifted it up. But on that day, Christ, the firstfruits, entered within the veil. And he presented himself to God the Father, and in doing so, there was a guarantee, an absolute guarantee of an abundance and a harvest of souls. Before I finish, I want to point out very quickly one other usage of the word firstfruits in the New Testament by way of challenge. Paul describes the first Christians at Achaia as firstfruits in Romans chapter 16, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. Well, what Paul meant by describing them as firstfruits is that those believers were just the first of many others who would come to faith in Christ in that area. And as we heard on Tuesday night, God's intention for every believer is that their faith does not end with them, but that it's passed on to others, that it's sounded out from them, producing a harvest of souls. James tells us in James 1 verse 18, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Was it not in the context of Christ speaking in terms of a harvest to his disciples in John chapter 4, that the woman of Samaria, having come to faith in Christ, was the firstfruits of her city? And from her and from her witness there came a a multitude of a harvest of souls out of that town of Sychar. And so you and I are to be a firstfruits. Our faith is not to terminate in us, but is to go out and produce fruit in others to the praise and glory of our God. We're going to leave it there this morning. We've considered the feast of the firstfruits, the ceremony, the consecration, and the Christ of the feast. And may the Lord bless His word to our hearts. Let's just unite in prayer and look to the Lord, please, even as we gather around His word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Father, we thank you once again for the instruction that we can glean. We thank you, Lord, for the challenge of consecration, the battle of first things. And it does come, Lord. We pray that you'll help us as thy people. Lord, give us that greater love for Thee. And Lord, help us to consecrate those things that are Thine and Thou art worthy of. We thank Thee, Lord, for Christ, who is the firstfruits. We thank Thee, Lord, that His resurrection is the guarantee of the future bodily resurrection of the saints of God. We thank Thee, Lord, for the presentation of Himself within the veil, which is the guarantee of a harvest of souls from the four corners of this earth. To that end, we think today of our missionaries. And we pray, O God, that Thou would bless them, each and every one, and that they would see the harvest being gathered in. And we pray, O God, that Thou would bless us as we go into the time of prayer and then morning worship. We ask for Thy presence to linger on. And we pray that You'll hear our prayer for these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.